This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Lubell at St. Joseph's University. And today, I welcome Robert Boatwright and Valerie Sperling to discuss their new book, Trumping Politics as Usual, Masculinity, Misogyny, and the 2016 Elections, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Robert Boatwright is professor and chair of political science at Clark University. He's currently uh, Director of Research for the National Institute of Civil Discourse at the University of Arizona. My new books and political science colleague, Keith Brown, interviewed Rob when his edited volume, The Deregulatory Moment, A Comparative Perspective on Changing Campaign Finance Laws, was published by the University of Michigan Press in 2015, and I'm delighted to welcome him back to New Books and Political Science. Welcome, Rob. Thanks. Glad to be here. Valerie Sperling is professor of political science at Clark University. My new book's colleague, Amanda Jean Swain, interviewed Valerie when her book, Sex, Politics, and Putin, Political Legitimacy in Russia, was published by Oxford University Press in 2015. I'm thrilled to have a comparativist on the program. So welcome back to the New Books Network, Valerie. Thank you very much. The 2016 American election forced scholars and candidates to reassess the role that gender plays in elections. Uh, your book focuses on how gender norms are used to frame, both positively and negatively, the people who run for office. And you highlight two themes, attention to gender and sexism, and what happens when the media, electorate, and candidates expect to have a clear winner and loser. And here you distinguish between the top of the ticket and down ballot candidates to tell a really compelling story about the impact of the 2016 presidential race on competitive congressional races. And, and before we dig into the details of your argument, I wanna ask how a comparativist who specializes in Russian politics and wrote an award-winning book on political legitimacy in Russia and an Americanist focused on campaign finance reform and congressional redistricting came to collaborate uh, and, and what that collaboration process looks like. I'll go ahead and start. So, um, so I was, so to give you a little bit of, uh, of background, um, I had been reading some of Rob's work because I was department chair um, and Rob was coming up for promotion. And Rob had been reading my work on sex politics and Putin because he's a really good scholar. <laughs> and, um, and around the time, I guess, that Donald Trump declared his candidacy and started saying these sexist things and some of the things that he had said in the past came up. Um, Rob and I had a conversation where we thought, you know, wouldn't it be fun to take the analysis in sex, politics, and Putin and apply it 
to Rob's expertise. So we sort of took my expertise in gender norms and we, um, and we thought we would put it together with Rob's expertise in campaigns and elections. And we had, you know, what I think of as our Brady Bunch moment, you know, <laughs> we brought together um, our expertise and this book, Trumping Politics, is the result. Rob, how was the collaborating process day to day? I know you're at the same university. I'm assuming you're near your offices. H how does it get handled? Uh, our offices are right nearby. Um, and both of us are knowledgeable about what the other one specializes in. So it was, it was a remarkably easy collaboration. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to encourage Valerie to do the things she does best, to bring in all of the comparative angle and uh, to talk a little bit about the ways in which Trump was, was reminiscent of authoritarian leaders in other countries. And she spent a lot of time pushing me to do the sorts of things that I do. Well, it sounds like a, a really productive collaboration and it, it, it's terrific. I, I talked to a lot of joint authors and and, and sometimes they start at the same place and then they end up all over uh, the world and, and they can still keep the collaboration going. And as some of you know, Heath Brown, some of the listeners will recognize that Heath has a new special series podcast devoted to collaboration. And if you listen to it, you realize, wow, people do this really, really differently. Um, so the book interrogates, uh, you know, how both the Trump and the Clinton campaigns uh, affected these other elections that took place in 2016. And, and you're looking at the ways in which gender stereotypes and insulting references to women in the presidential conference uh, influenced the ways in which House and Senate candidates campaigned. The, the New Books Network has an international audience and this podcast also serves as a permanent archive of the book. So, not everybody will be listening to it in August of 2020, although many will. So I think it would really help if you would start off by briefly describing gender and sexism in the 2016 election to kind of set the stage for the book. Um, shall I start? Um, so, so I think gender and sexism were sort of unusually central to the 2016 presidential campaign. Um, Gender and sexism come up in, as far as I can tell, all political contests, uh, really um, of any kind. Of course, maybe that's because I study gender norms and I find them particularly interesting. And so they, you know, they, they, it, it all depends, you know, maybe that's the, maybe that's the street light that I'm looking around under. Um, but I, but I would just sort of preface all this by saying that, you know, masculinity, femininity, um, misogyny, homophobia, these things, once you start looking for them, they do come up in, you know, in, in lots of different political uh, contexts. But I think in the 2016 elections, what we were finding in the, in the book was that A, having a woman at the top of one ticket, and B, having not just a man, but a sort of overt, explicit, recidivist misogynist at the top of the other ticket, really put the focus on gender and, uh, and sexism in the 2016 election. And of course you could see that in the general election. Um, but I would also just take a quick step back and say, if you think back to the Republican primary and what a peculiarly graphic masculinity contest that was, you know, where 
never before, I mean, you know, I, I'm not an Americanist, right? I, I study Russia, but to the best of my knowledge, you know, never before did you have candidates kind of competing over the relative size of their um, genitalia. <laughs> and, you know, it was just very strange, um, the degree to which masculinity uh, was publicly contested um, in that primary. And Rob, would you mind just pushing in again, we're, we're speaking to a really big audience and maybe an audience in the future and students who won't remember the campaign buttons and some of the other things that you pull out in the book that that I think for all of us, we're, we're used to it. And so it seems so ordinary, but can you just remind people of some of the worst offenses and, and the kinds of things that were being said? Uh, can I defer to Valerie on that one, actually? She seems, one keeps kind of a running tally of what she thought was worst. <laughs> sure, sure. So if we go back to, um, if we go back to the general election then, right in 2016, there is the sort of straightforward sexism that Trump displayed um, in the moment of the campaign, right? So talking about Hillary Clinton in terms of her looks, or going back to the primary even, talking about Carly Fiorina, and you know he made comments about like her face, and can you imagine that that would be the face of the U.S. you know the U.S. president and. Um, you know, and he, he also attacked Clinton in terms of how she looked. He made these comments about how he walks behind her and isn't impressed. Uh, you know, and then there were other, uh, there were other kind of high points, right? Uh, like when he addressed um, Megyn Kelly, right, the reporter, and said, you know, she had asked him a slightly challenging question about some of his previous sexist statements. And you know, afterwards he said, oh, she had blood coming out of her, you know, wherever, <laughs> you know, in this sort of biologically essentialist way, you know, trying to reduce um, a professional to her, you know, to her bodily, to her bodily function. So there were things like that. There was also, of course, in October, uh, really right before the election, um, there was that moment when uh, the Access Hollywood tapes were released. And this, you know, wasn't a recent um, and this wasn't a recent event. This was something that had been taped in, I want to say, 2005, where Billy Bush, the host of Access Hollywood, was speaking uh, to Trump. They were on their way to a taping, and Trump went off um, on what later I think was called like the Pussygate moment, right? Talking about how when you're a star, you can just walk up to attractive women, and and uh, Trump bragged about having uh, about having done this, and he said you can just grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. So there were those kinds of moments of sexism that leapt into the public sphere uh, in, in ways that I think are, you know, were uh, unusual for American politics. So the conventional wisdom would say that women are a big part of the electorate, more than 50%, and alienating them in this way would be a mistake. Uh, Rob, could you lay out a little bit of that conventional wisdom and, and compare it to what was going on here in 2016? Again, we'll deal with the, with, the, with the more details in the chapter, but I just think that calls out at the very beginning. Um, well, women have been uh, tilting somewhat democratic for uh, a couple decades now. Um, so it is, it is true that Trump may have lost uh, some women voters uh, by saying that sort of thing. 
Uh, but what the, the exit poll data for the election showed was that upwards of 90% of Republicans voted for the Republican candidate and upwards of 90% of Democrats voted for the Democrats. So there were many women, especially, you know, I think we'll talk, probably talk about this later. There were many uh, female Republican office holders who had problems with what Trump was saying, but I think partisanship just overwhelmed everything and it was always clear that it was going to. So he wasn't really gonna lose anybody by doing that. So before we move into the main chapters, I just want to state what I think is the thesis to make sure that we're, uh, that we're all right. You, you're not actually writing a book about whether people who identify as male or female win or lose. What you wanna focus on is how these gender norms frame candidates and the ultimate finding, and it's based on a really interesting and diverse analysis. This is a great book because it mixes theory and empirical stuff. It, I, you, the combination of the Americanist and comparativist really works. And Rob, some of your um, quote unquote Americanist material already has a comparative element. And, and Valerie, it's just very clear how you're able to apply what is this, what would be the study of, of sexist norms and authoritarianism in another place to this. So it's all really, really brilliant. Um, so I just wanna make clear to everybody what, this is a small, like it's not an, an intimidating book in terms of the page numbers, but it's a remarkably rich and nuanced book that I really welcome everybody to read, especially before we go into November, because I think it's gonna be relevant. All right, if I have it right, the ultimate argument is that gender stereotypes always, as Rob just said, permeate American campaigns. And as Valerie said earlier, you see this not just in American campaigns, but everywhere. But the 2016 presidential election highlighted this aspect of, of, of politics because there was a woman at the top of a major party ticket, which had not been the case before. And there was this misogynist opponent. So that led uh, down ticket candidates to really radically alter the nature of the congressional campaign. And I think it, you, you boil it down to two ways. It made these competitive races more consequential for both the Democrats and the Republicans. And it actually changed the, the way down ticket people behaved. Okay, so before we go any further, have I got it? Is there anything you want to push in on that to make it finer or prettier? I think that's good. Um, I think uh, one way to analogize this is there was, there was a circus going on at the top of the ticket. In your average election year, the presidential election does shape what goes on in congressional races, Senate races. Candidates know this, right? They know that turnout is going to be driven by what's going on at the top of the ticket. But they can often ignore the details. If you think back to American elections of 20, 30, 40 years ago, people running for the House or Senate were often quite good at just ignoring the presidential race and assuming that the presidential candidates were going to behave like Democrats and Republicans always do and that they could just run their own campaigns. Whereas in 2016, what was going on at the top of the ticket just dominated uh, what everybody thought about the election. So if you were running for Congress, you had to think about that, right? You had to be ready to respond to the craziest thing Donald Trump said, regardless of what it was, right? Regardless of whether you were on his side or not. And you had to decide, am I gonna try to be like, if you're a Republican, right? You had to decide, am I gonna act like this guy? 
am I going to just pretend he doesn't exist or am I going to push back? And those were, those were things that uh, people running for Congress were not used to doing. Even in years, even in races where the, one of the candidates was kind of unpopular, like if you think back to, uh, let's say 1996, right, where Republicans knew that Bob Dole was probably not going to win, they didn't have to worry about the Dole campaign being a distraction, right? They could just pretend it didn't exist and run their own campaign, but they couldn't do that this year. Yeah, Valerie, please. You know, I would just add to that um, by saying that, you know, I think that the, the Trump campaign um, changed, I think what we argue is that the, the Trump campaign changed the, uh, the sort of election in, in a couple of ways, you know, as you've been uh, elaborating, it put the Republic, it put Republican down ballot candidates, as Rob was saying, on the defensive, like you just said, they had to be prepared to respond, especially to his misogynist statements. Um, and also, Trump was uh, expected to, to lose. And that those two things come together in our argument, because in large part, he was expected to lose because of his misogyny. No, and, and when he doesn't, it's, well, it's, it's fodder for a fantastic book and a difficult polity. Um, Valerie, you write the theory chapter and you're, you do a sort of overview of what we, what we, we thought we know <laughs> about whether and how gender usually matters in elections and, I'm sorry, campaigns and elections. So would you just give us a, a sort of brief version of what we think we knew beforehand and then move us to, okay, so how did 2016 break with what we already knew? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so, uh, so that chapter is uh, really a, a collaboration also. Um, but, uh, but okay, so what did I learn, right, as a comparativist who uh, knew really precious little um, about American politics. I can tell you the thing that I learned first and um, and over and over again, which is that, you know, we might think that gender matters. We might think that the candidate, uh, the, the, the sex or gender of the candidate matters. But it turns out that most of the time, that doesn't matter at all. The only thing that matters is party ID. Like, party ID over and over and over again. I kept thinking, yeah, but like, look at all these things that Trump is saying, doesn't it matter? And, you know, Rob would kind of say, well, at the end of the day, though, it's really hard to shake people off their party ID. And um, from everything that I read, including, you know, comparative work on gender and elections, it turns out that, that that's just true. Um, people will not desert their party in order to vote for or against uh, a woman. All right, so that's, that's that. That said, um, and, and it's also apparently the case that for the most part, at least looking at the US and congressional uh, elections, women are not really disadvantaged compared to men when they're running for office. Uh, that said though, that argument does not really, we can't really comfortably make that argument about the executive level, about the presidential level. Um, because we have very little data, <laughs> extremely little data, in fact. And, um, and I think that, you know, one, one of the arguments that's, uh, that's been made, and I think made very well and very convincingly, is that it's not so much that the media 
you know, treats women badly or something like that. It's that, um, it's that there are instances of sexist treatment uh, that, you know, we learn about that may turn some women off of running. And so the problem is less that women don't do well at the ballot box and more that women don't run. Now, interestingly, one of the things that the 2016 election changed uh, was this women don't run thing. Um, Emily's List and other organizations uh, that help women run for office were absolutely flooded after um, the 2016 election resulted in, uh, in Trump's winning in the Electoral College. Um, I think women were absolutely appalled. And you can't argue that they didn't realize that, you know, that if they ran for office, there might be some misogyny hurled in their direction, because especially after the 2016 campaign, it would have been perfectly obvious that, um, that if, if they, if, that if women, you know, went out into the public sphere and, uh, and, and opened their mouths and really said almost anything, there was going to be some misogynist, there was a good chance of there being some misogynist reaction. So, um, so I think that the level of misogyny in the 2016 campaign actually had the effect of motivating a lot of women to go out uh, into the uh, into the public sphere. Uh, Rob, did you want to add anything or push anything in on that? Um, <clears throat> I think Valerie has the story right. I think um, there's a huge literature on whether women are at a disadvantage running for office. I think there are all sorts of areas in which women may have a more difficult time, right? They may have a difficult time raising money. Uh, for years, it was the case that the Democratic Party recruited women to run in kind of unwinnable races because there are voters who will vote for a candidate because that candidate is a woman. Uh, and in some congressional districts, that would you know, help the party a little bit, uh, win, win the race. Um, much of that has changed, but it's, it's changed on the Democratic side. I think one of the most fascinating things we found in writing the book is that the real losers in 2016 were Republican women. And I think the media have kind of picked up on this, and there have been stories over the last year or two about women fleeing the Republican Party. I don't know that those stories have it exactly right. I think the, the bigger challenge is that we hold women to a different standard. Right. And so in the Senate races we looked at in the book, people expected women Republicans to push back against Trump, or at least they felt that they had a responsibility to do that. We didn't expect that then. Right. So in a way, women Republicans were supposed to be more virtuous than the guys. Right. And they were penalized if they weren't. So that was, uh, uh, you know, we, we've it's going to take a few years before all of that's disentangled within the Republican Party. But there are all sorts of kind of subtle ways in which I think. Uh, conservative women wound up uh, being worse off that year. Rob, Valerie mentioned that we really don't have a lot of data because we because there is something different about the way people treat the presidency so that looking at women running for Congress, uh, maybe even women for running for governors, I don't know, is is not the same. What do you think of that? Can we can we extrapolate from other types of executives like like governors, or are we going to have to wait over well, elections to now figure this out? Uh, well, we did a little bit in the book of looking at different countries, which again doesn't necessarily help us understand the United States. Um, there's some evidence that women running for governor get treated differently in their campaigns, again, because it's an executive office. Um, 
Valerie and I have spent a little bit of time talking about how uh, female governors right now are being treated during the COVID epidemic, whether there's more pushback against the edicts of you know, somebody like Gretchen Whitmer or another uh, female governor who's been aggressive in trying to uh, shut things down during the epidemic. Um, but uh, I think running for Congress is just fundamentally different in part because people know less about those races. And so the candidate's name can be a cue, right? We can pick out women's names on the ballot and in some cases that's the only signal people get. And I think Americans are less likely to vote against somebody simply because that person is a woman they may be less likely to vote for a woman who they've been told by the opposing party has other undesirable traits, but if they just see the name on the ballot, they're unlikely to vote against them and they may be pushed to vote for them. Uh, so women have, I think, in especially in multi-candidate races, been at a little bit of an advantage uh, compared to similarly situated men in the last decade or so. Valerie, what do you think about this issue of the executive? Why is it so different? Why, does, why do gender frames matter more here? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I think, um, I think it's potentially different because people see, because the qualities, well, all right, the qualities, if we think about um, gender norms, right, and what is masculinity and what is femininity and what are the qualities associated with both of those things, they tend to line up in a kind of binary way. So being masculine means being aggressive, it means being assertive, it means being decisive, it means being rational, it means being strong, you know, uh, it means being tough, uh, and being feminine kind of means, you know, being weak, needing protection, being emotional. And so I think that especially perhaps for, you know, whereas with, whereas with a congressional candidate, something like consensus building and compromise, you know, which are qualities probably more associated with women, maybe that's seen as desirable. I think in the presidency, in the executive, there is something um, that links the image of the executive with masculine qualities, right? So the very notion of leadership, I think in many of our minds is inextricably tied up with masculinity. Perhaps it's because, you know, the president seems to have more, um, you know, more control over something like military decisions, you know, national security decisions, sort of where you would imagine that consensus or compromise would be less desirable than a kind of decisiveness and strength, you know, certainly if you look at, um, somebody, uh, you know, like, like Trump or like, or like Putin, you know, you're getting a very sort of stereotypically masculine, um, I'm not going to be pushed around um, sort of vibe. And I think that it's probably just most people don't think of women as being capable. You know, there are going to be the exceptions. Somebody will say Margaret Thatcher, you know, somebody will say gold in my ear. And of course, right. But, um, but that, that's where I would see the difference. 
So let's um, move back to uh, some of the really interesting takeaways in the book. So you, 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 you lay out how these phases of the presidential race set up these subsequent down ballot elections. And I think it would be, it would be good to just um, give us the sort of highlights of how it is that you took this comparative training that you have and this study of Putin and applied it so that you could better contextualize Trump and what was, what was happening in the American election. Hmm. So, um, so one of the things that, that Rob and I talked about uh, and that Rob alluded to earlier was the study of authoritarianism um, uh, and kind of the authoritarian um, personality in politics. Uh, and so, you know, we, we looked around at, at different countries and there's a short section in the book where we make kind of international comparisons. Uh, you know, we, we talk a little bit about um, a handful of, uh, of executives around the world who have adopted a sort of um, masculine, sort of hyper-masculine embrace of violence uh, and, and misogyny. Uh, and so, you know, we took uh, the example of Jair Bolsonaro, who was, you know, known to be, um, he had made some uh, rape jokes when he was running office. We took uh, Duterte in the Philippines, who had also said some really unsavory, um, you know, misogynist things when running. We looked at, um, you know, at, uh, Vladimir Putin as the leader um, in, in Russia, and so also saw this kind of intentionally somewhat crass and vulgar way of speaking, not all the time, you know, like able to do the cultured thing, but, um, but also able to, uh, you know, if we call it charitably something like shoot from the hip, tell it like it is, um, and, you know, not hesitate to be, uh, to sort of be bluntly aggressive. We, we, we could sort of situate Trump in that general category of, um, of male leaders. So I, and I really liked that section of the book. So um, I was sorry it was as brief as it was, but it was very, very potent. And I think it, and it, and it, and of course, even rang truer because Trump has been such a fan of Putin's. So everything that you say with now some more time under the bridge, you can really see that these things that you're calling out as similarities are actually things that, that he very much admires and what, what you call cultured or what we might say we expect from Robert Dole uh, or even from Richard Nixon in public as opposed to Richard Nixon on the tapes is, is absent and there's somehow a celebration of it that, that, that goes along with it. Anyway, loved that part of the book. Um, Rob, you um, make the point in the book that Republicans in both the Senate and the House got put in a really tough spot because they either had to denounce sexism and racism and risk their maybe losing the Trump-based vote or uh, embrace it and lose female Republican uh, votes. And you talk about um, how this Trump factor affected both the House and the Senate races. And, and can you walk us through a little bit of that, of what you found 
whether what surprised you um, and, and what you think the major takeaways were? Sure. Um, well, the Republican Party had been in a state of decay for a decade, perhaps more, going into 2016, right? That's part of why Trump won the nomination to begin with. But one of the major symptoms of that decay was the rise of the Tea Party movement in 2010. And many of the Tea Party candidates, they were true believers, right? You can agree with them or not, but they, they had an ideological position that they wanted to get out there. And they didn't necessarily do it by, you know, hurling invectives at people who <laughs> are being obnoxious, right? Uh, they ran in many ways like politicians do, right? Just with a very ideological message. And these people were kind of drowned out in the primaries, right? Trump's appeal was not ideological, right? There's a huge debate among political scientists now about whether populism is an ideology, right? But I think the way Trump practiced it, it was a style, right? It was a kind of performance. And so that put a lot of the Republican primary candidates in a bind because they wanted to talk about issues, but they couldn't because Trump was dominating the news and they couldn't necessarily go and talk about it like Trump, even if they wanted to. That is, you know, your average Brazilian politician can't go and be Bolsonaro. Your average Filipino politician can't go and be Duterte, right? It's not something, you know, it's in the same way that I don't think I'm the kind of person who can just get out there and talk like Donald Trump effectively, right? That sounds stupid. <laughs> uh, so this was the dilemma a lot of Republicans had, and it, it it worked badly no matter how you did it, right? Uh, we talked a little bit about the presidential race, right? Where Marco Rubio briefly tried to talk like Trump and utterly failed, right? Because he can't do that. Um, so many of the candidates who tried to capture what Trump was doing just couldn't do it. And on the other hand, we, we talked a little bit about what were called mini Trumps in the media. And these people got kind of a bum rap too, right? There were people running for office who were, had perhaps had a history in the past where they said something rude or obnoxious, right? And they got called mini Trumps, right? And as much as they wanted to say like, hey, I'm not that guy, right? They couldn't necessarily get away from that label. So Republicans were put in this, this challenging position where they couldn't necessarily act like Trump, but many of them got sort of tarred with the same brush as Trump. Uh, so the primaries, I think, were very difficult. We're seeing the results of this today, right? The Tea Party is gone, right? Um, the whatever happened to that movement, right? It's not going to come back within the Republican Party anytime soon. As far as the general election went, um, there were a variety of moments that we document in the book where Republicans could have backed off from their support for Trump and yet they, they didn't, I think perhaps because they were worried about keeping those voters. And what put them, I think, in a bind is that all around them, people who weren't running for re-election were bailing on Trump, right? Republican intellectuals stopped uh, supporting him kind of early in the campaign. Republican funders, right? The Koch uh, brothers never put money into the race. One thing documented in the book is super PAC money, right? Super PAC money fled Trump pretty early in the year to try to help these uh, Senate candidates. So if you're running for the Senate or you're for the House in the general election, everybody in your party has given up on Trump, but you can't say it. <laughs> so, so it's really, I think, a very difficult 
raise for a lot of Republicans. And given that the party, you know, once he won, kind of everybody backed him in lockstep after the election, right? It's hard to look back and feel that sorry uh, for all of these folks. But it really was a sign that all was not well with the sort of the normal Republican Party, even back then. Uh, does that happen again? Because now those same down-ballot candidates for House and Senate uh, look at this and think he's going to lose? And are the donors doing the same thing that you would expect them to do? And, and part of the reason I asked that question is that when I started reading the book, I just thought, is this an exceptional election? that's gonna be very difficult for political scientists to analyze because there just isn't another one like it. And how, how, how much are we going to see either looking back, make, helping make sense of the past, and how much as we hold this book looking to November 2020, is it gonna help it make sense? So I'm wondering what you think about, about that. Um, well, it was an exceptional, election. At this point, it's hard to imagine the Republican Party getting back to the way it was. I think Republican politicians are going to have this temptation over the next several years to try to capture some of what Trump did without, you know, going full Trump. Um, uh, there's a editorial that's been talked a lot about uh, by David Brooks that was in the New York Times last week about paths forward for the Republican Party. And all of the people who he thinks can pick up the pieces after Trump don't seem like they've got it, right? They can't necessarily pull uh, that much of the party behind them. So it's hard to see things snapping back to normal anytime soon. But then again, you know, people were predicting after 2008 that the Republican Party was in serious trouble. So who knows? Do you know if the donors have moved their money away from Trump and, and down the ballots? Well, we're seeing some of that this year. Um, certainly, there's a lot of evidence. I mean, Trump is much better funded this year than he was in 2016, in large part because this is money that he raised before his polling numbers started to crumble in March. But uh, most of the super PAC money and most of the money from the Sheldon Adelsons and the other big donors is going into the Senate right now. It's doing the same thing that Republicans did back in 2016, right? Try to save the Senate, try to cut Trump loose. And I don't know exactly how that's going to play out. But the, the crazy thing that happened in 2016 is that everybody gave Trump up for dead. However, the truly, um, I don't know what the word is, right? The truly troublesome thing about super PAC money is it can flood back into the system at a moment's notice. So what we document in the book is all the money went away. And then that last week, three or four rich guys, right? The Ricketts family who owned the Chicago Cubs were kind of the ringleaders on this, right? Once they realized Trump had a chance, the money flooded all right back in in the last week. So yeah, the money's gone away now, and everybody seems to kind of want to do what they can to help the handful of marginal Republican Senate candidates. But, you know, if anything weird happens in the race, that could change quickly. So in the last substantive chapter of the book, you look at the content of these races. 
you look at themes in the campaign, you look at advertising of the Senate candidates, you analyze a lot of data. Um, talk about what you think are the most interesting things that you learned from that analysis of, of how the candidates were presenting themselves and also the extent to which the candidate can control their image of themselves as opposed to how it is mediated through the press. I could, I could start. Um, I learned an awful lot about American politics from writing, uh, from writing this book with Rob. And one of the things that I found most striking uh, that I had absolutely no idea of was that the people who make candidate campaign advertisements have read an awful lot in women's and gender studies. They know that field really well. Um, so for example, they know that um, they know all about gender stereotypes. They know that women are affiliated with the home, you know, with the private sphere more than the public sphere. They know that for men it's the other way around. They know that women have the reputation of being compassionate and that men sometimes kind of lack, uh, you know, their reputation kind of suggests that they aren't sufficiently compassionate. And so the campaign, um, the people who make these advertisements compensate for all of that. They are constantly thinking about it and compensating for it. So for example, you know, you want to be able to show in our, you know, homophobic uh, society that, um, that a candidate for Congress, say, or, or the presidency is heterosexual. So you want to show that candidate with their um, opposite sex spouse. So you can do that with a male candidate, say for Senate or for um, or for the House. You know you can show him with his uh, with his wife, and that's great. That proves that he's like a red-blooded American male. Uh, you know, no problem. The second that you show a woman candidate for office next to her husband, as soon as he walks out the door, he looks more presidential, congressional, senatorial, gubernatorial, whatever, than she does, just because he's a man. So this is very challenging, and. Um, and so the advertisers are very careful not to overplay showing women like in their homes, in their private sphere. And, uh, and they're also, we found there was quite a lot of interesting information about using words like toughness, right? And like, I'm a fighter and I'm tough. And we found that men running against men are more, a little more likely to use that kind of language, um, but also that women were likely to use that kind of language when running against men in order to show that they are as tough and they are as as prepared. So there was quite a bit of um, I found that really surprising and really uh, and really interesting. Rob, did you want to talk about the 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 end or? Well, uh, I could add something about the the ads. Um, the big disadvantage that Democratic men in 2016 had was that Hillary Clinton had been in politics for a while and they at one time or another had been in a photograph with her. Right? So uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the Democratic men running for office wound up being the subject of attack ads that showed them with Hillary Clinton. Republicans didn't necessarily have that problem. Uh, many of them made a point of staying away from Donald Trump. Uh, but even if they were photographed with Trump, it didn't carry the same sort of feminizing story, perhaps, that showing Democrats uh, with Clinton did. So the ads, I think, um, the most striking thing that I think Valerie's pointed out is that 
you can have two men running against each other and there still is a gender component to the campaign, right? They'll try to be more manly or, uh, you know, use gender norms against each other. Um, one of the most striking races in uh, 2016 was the uh, New Hampshire Senate race with two women running against each other where uh, I think our favorite ad that we, we analyzed was uh, uh, Kelly Iote, the Republican candidate, showed herself in the mountains carrying her baby in one of those baby Bjorn carriers, right? So she managed to be tough because she was hiking yet motherly because she had her child. So uh, I think women, again, had to do things in 2016 to separate themselves from the stuff going on at the top of the ticket. And uh, ultimately, I think Republican women were not all that successful in doing that. I could uh, I could I could add a little something to that as well about the ads, which is that um, we noticed uh, that Democratic women running against Republican men, um, Democratic women in their attack ads would often try to link their opponents to Trump, um, either by saying so and so is sexist like Trump, or um, even better by saying that you know because this particular male Republican down ballot candidate wouldn't uh, renounce Trump or denounce some of the misogynist things that he said, they would say he's not manly enough to stand up to Trump, right? So that's a way of, you know, undermining a candidate's masculinity. Um, and so that was another interesting feature of the advertising. <clears throat> We're recording this conversation a day after Joe Biden named Kamala Harris as his vice presidential pick. Um, and since Biden announced his intention to pick a woman as vice president, we've heard quite a bit of the stereotyping that you describe in the book. We hear candidates criticized for being too ambitious, uh, the use of all of the adjectives that you've mentioned so far. So given what you learned about 2016, um, have you been surprised by either the use of the gender normative frames and appeals and tactics uh, in the primary thus, uh, in the primary earlier or thus far in, in the general election? And, and also, I guess I'm wondering about race, because the book, you're very careful. Sometimes you talk about race and gender, but you pretty quickly pull back because the focus of the book is misogyny, not racism. But obviously, with the pick of a biracial candidate, we have a very, very different set of, um, of frames that are available for either positive or negative framing. Well, I, I could... I could start by saying a little bit about, um, you know, about that latter uh, issue. I mean, <laughs> I guess it would be, I can't say that I'm surprised by any of this stuff. I'm like continually disappointed, I guess, <laughs> but, but I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't say su surprised, you know, it's not at all surprising that some of the first words out of, you know, Trump's mouth around Kamala Harris would be to call her nasty. Like he likes to, any woman who speaks up in a way that's, you know, critical of him is automatically know, nasty. Um, but, uh, you know, I think what we see going on with some of the comments that you heard uh, about, you know, all the different possibilities for female vice presidential picks, you know, whether it was Susan Rice or Kamala Harris, they're all just sort of these textbook illustrations 
of racism and sexism being combined, you know, so regarding black female politicians, I think in particular, as too ambitious or abrasive or insufficiently apologetic, this is just giving voice to these very deep-seated white biases regarding black women and their proper roles um, and behaviors. So, so again, like that's not surprising. It's it's sad, um, you know. And and thinking back, like you said, to the to the primary, Elizabeth Warren said something very interesting um, uh, about this when she dropped out. She summed it up by saying, you know, she was asked about sexism. Like, was there sexism involved in this? And she said, you know, if you say, yeah, there was sexism um, in this race, then people say, oh, you're such a whiner, right? But if you say, no, there was no sexism, um, she said, and I quote, about a bazillion women say, what planet do you live on? <laughs> so, you know, so that's, so I think there's, you know, I think there's good evidence. There's been some, you know, there's been some work done by Brian Schaffner and some of his colleagues showing that, you know, in the Democratic primary, voters in that primary who scored higher on the hostile sexism scale uh, were much less likely, way much less likely to support female Democratic presidential candidates. You know, the hostile sexism scale is, um, is about, you know, no longer do we sort of look at the sort of you know, traditional sexism, like people are no longer going to say, oh yeah, women should be barefoot and pregnant and in the kitchen. Now they'll say things or they'll agree with things like women are offended too easily, you know, or, you know, women see discrimination where there is none and they're just trying to get advantage. So people who score higher on that scale were even Democrats, even Democrats who vote in primaries were significantly uh, less likely to support female candidates. You know, and, and what about sexuality in the primaries? I mean, you talk quite a bit about homophobia in the book uh, alongside and related to hypermasculinity. Oh, again, I won't use the verb surprised, you're right. But what, what were, as you looked at how Buttigieg, for example, was, was talked about as, 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 as people considered vice presidential candidates who were openly gay, did you did you see the frameworks that you expected? Uh, was there anything that you were sort of ready to either be uh, optimistic about or or consider terribly concerning? Well, I think um, you you have to assign responsibility here. I think in our book. Um, much of what we have to say has to do with the campaign of Donald Trump, right? And Trump didn't necessarily have the ability or really a reason to get too heavily involved in the Democratic primaries this year. Um, I think also in our book, we point out that the media tend to emphasize certain kinds of features. And so, you know, we could certainly talk about that with reference to 2020. But I think much of what much of what was most effective on the Trump side in 2016 that the media kind of deliberately played along with was the insinuations, right? It's not just that Hillary Clinton is a woman, that she's a certain kind of woman, and you might not see that, but her husband figured it out or something like that, right? There's always some sort of deeper story. So the story that Pete Buttigieg is gay, right? He pointed that out to everybody, right? It's not, it's not the stuff of conspiracy theories, perhaps some sort of creepy story could have been manufactured about it, but it never was, right? And so that's that's what we see with Kamala Harris uh, 
right now, I think, it, for one thing, it would have been surprising if Trump had said something nice and flattering about her, right? That would not have been news. Instead, what we heard from the Trump campaign was a story that's not really true, right? That she's an extreme radical, right? I used a bunch of adjectives that suggest that we thought we knew her, right? But we don't really. There's a creepy story that is going to be fleshed out. And I think that is, um, you know, that, that's what the Trump campaign has, has excelled at. And when simply confronted with a female candidate or a gay candidate or a black candidate, right? That's not, that's not in itself something of consequence to the to the media or the Trump campaign, really. It's, it's what, what gets done with that. And sometimes things get done with it and sometimes they don't. You know, one thing, one thing I would just add on, um, you know, thinking about homophobia is uh, the way that, you know, like you would, you would expect maybe, you know, some kind of, you would expect maybe Trump to, you know, uh, use homophobia against somebody. But what I found uh, really interesting, actually, was the way that um, anti-Trump protesters have tried to wield homophobia um, against Trump as a way of critiquing his masculinity. So even, even before he was elected, but certainly after he was elected, there was, you know, when you go back to the women's marches, you know, you saw signs that said things like, keep your tiny hands off my rights. And that, what is that? Like, that is just going right back to masculinity, you know, and saying that, you know, going back to, to um, Marco Rubio and the idea that Trump is somehow deficient, you know, in the genitalia department, which then somehow by analogy means he's not a good president. Um, and then there was a lot of really interesting, um, you know, especially to me, homophobic stuff around Trump and Putin, you know, saying, and this had to do with, you know, the Russian election interference and collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians and this kind of thing. And there was an awful lot of, you know, of signage at, uh, at those, uh, at, you know, even at the women's marches, right? Trump is Putin's bitch, you know, like what better way of capturing you know, homophobia and trying to use it as a political tool. And we've seen just an enormous amount, um, just an enormous amount of that. There was, I just saw a cartoon yesterday uh, that, you know, in, in light of the fact that Russia is apparently, you know, testing a vaccine against the coronavirus, it's, a, it's an image of Putin delivering, you know, the vaccine to, to Trump, who is in the, in the cartoon, he's on all fours, and his pants are pulled down, he's just about to get, you know, his, uh, his vaccine in the bum. And there's all these efforts to try to make Trump look unmanly, unstrong, enthralled to Putin, um, and a bad president, not because he's a bad president, he's a horrible president, but because there's this like implication of, you know, gayness and being enthralled to another man. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Those are, those are really questionable uses. Uh, Rob, I was going to say about the, the ad that Trump launched right after Biden announced Harris, that these two adjectives, phony and radical, which, which, which drove the ad were fascinating. First of all, because it seems a very ineffective ad. So whomever they paid for it, Phony is interesting. She's a senator from an enormous state. She's been an attorney general. She has impressive degrees. So Phony is a, is a funny thing to call her. And, a, and as I was thinking about this book today, I thought, Phony, Phony, what's the, 
what is the gender frame? Is there a gender framework there? I, I, I couldn't really figure it out. And then with radical, again, a sort of a, a very interesting adjective to try to throw at her. And I wondered if the ad makers were being hypersensitive to some accusation of racism. Because when you look at what Vice President Pence was signaling far more overtly about like, you know, come join the race and uh, welcome to, you know, can't remember what he said about Utah, but it was, a, it was Black Twitter considered it to be dog whistle politics and, and quite racist, was a real contrast to that ad. You know, the ad seemed very careful in terms of, of race and even maybe of gender. Um, they seem to be more attacking Biden through his choice of her than her herself. And maybe that's sexism as well. Well, uh, vice presidential uh, nominees have never really made a difference in the outcome of a race. So it's not necessarily that effective to go after Harris as compared to going after Biden for, for choosing her. But I think it is, uh, Valerie is often telling me things are gendered when I don't, immediately see that they're gendered. But I think in this case, I think that there is a lot of evidence that voters are more likely to suspect female politicians of being corrupt or duplicitous, right? So to claim that she is phony is going to be more effective, I think because she's a woman, because she's somewhat less well-known than Joe Biden. And I think we, you know, we, we treat women uh, worse if we think that they're making compromises or saying things for political gain. So you might look at this and say, well, Trump has changed his mind about any number of things. He often says things that aren't true, and yet we don't penalize him for being phony necessarily, right? That's part of his, his deal. But I think that was, I think he used the same accusation against Clinton. Uh, so I think there is a gender element there. I, uh, I agree 100% with, uh, with what Rob just said. Um, and to go back to the other part of your question about radical, um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I have a feeling that right now use of the words like radical and socialist are actually ways of saying black. Um, and I think that because, you know how you hear now, for reasons that are completely baffling to me, uh, that Black Lives Matter is a communist organization. <laughs> um, I think that those words are starting to have this race, racist edge to them. So that's, that's where I think it's coming from. I think they're testing it out, seeing if it sticks, um, and I think it's a little bit of code. We've also heard a lot that, about her being from Oakland, right, which is... One thing that, you know, if, if you hear about an African-American woman from Oakland, right, you immediately flip back to the 1960s. So that's got to be deliberate. No, I agree. No, that's, that's terrific. Um, I'm so sorry we're going to have to end this conversation because I think we should, could just keep talking. But tell me what each one of you is working on right now so New Books Network can look forward to the next book from both of you, either together or apart. Valerie, what, what are you up to right now? Well, right now, um, I am doing a couple of, as we always are, right? I'm doing a couple of different things. I have one project going on analyzing Putin's speeches, because he's now been in power for 20 years. Uh, we're looking, I'm looking with a handful of colleagues 
at um, certain speeches that he gives every year. So every year he gives an International Women's Day speech. Every year he gives a New Year's address. Every year he gives us a talk, like a State of the Union address to, um, to the Russian uh, parliament. And uh, every year he holds a big press conference and every year he holds what's called the direct line where people can call in and he answers their questions. And so we're looking to see what has Putin said over time and how has it changed with regard to gender equality and women. So that's one project that um, I'm right in the middle of. Another project that I finished recently was about gender discrimination cases at the European Court of Human Rights coming from Russia and Turkey. Um, that, that has been um, published as a book, but I'm working on a, a chapter that kind of goes a little more into detail on how the European Court of Human Rights has handled domestic violence cases in particular as a type of gender discrimination. Wow, they both sound fantastic. Rob, what, what are you working on right now? Uh, well, my, my stuff's pretty different. Um, I guess the main uh, thing that I've focused on for the past few years is that there are no easy uh, fixes to what's going on in American politics. I think a lot of people tend to assume that there are rule changes we can explore that will uh, fix the problems caused by polarization. Uh, so I've got a book project on corruption that is allegedly due in October, which takes aim at this notion that we should be passing election laws, campaign finance laws, et cetera, that will stop corruption because nobody knows what corruption means. And historically, it's just this big term that we use to fling at our opponents. Um, so I'm working on that. And then I'm also working on a history of primary election law changes. Another thing that people, I think, erroneously conclude is if we somehow change the laws governing primaries, we'd have a better electoral system. So I've been trying to document that over the past century, we've changed our laws frequently and it's, it's not really made noteworthy differences. Wow, those both also sound fantastic. You'll, you'll both have to promise whether it's with me or any of the other hosts to come back and talk to us. Uh, for listeners, if you liked what you heard, you can go back and hear Valerie's uh, uh, podcast about sex, politics, and Putin. And you can also hear Rob's uh, podcast about deregulatory moment comparative perspectives on campaign finance law. But this book, which I recommend reading and assigning for fall of 2020, is Trumping Politics as Usual, Masculinity, Misogyny, and the 2016 Election by Rob Boatwright, Valerie Sperling, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. It's available everywhere, both the Oxford University Press website, the usual Amazon and Barnes and Noble, but you could also check out bookshop.org, which will support your small independent brick and mortar bookstores, but yet bring it directly to your door. You can check that out as well. That's a personal recommendation from me, not the network. And um, thank you both so much for taking the time. I know you're both scrambling to figure out what, how we're all teaching classes this fall, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's a great book. Thank you for having us. Thank you.